0: chapter 11, Gospel of John, chapter 11, just to give you a hint, that's a preview of what is coming November 7th. Don't miss, you can miss a lot of Sundays, don't miss November 7th, because uh, a lot of us have been able to observe the story somewhat close, um, but we get to observe the journey uh, that David and his family went through. Uh, I won't lie, I've been inviting people like crazy. I was at the football game a week from Friday night, and I was making the way around, and I said, you know David Johnson? I said, yeah. I said, come November 7th, be at our gym. We want you to hear it. Then uh, I had the blessing of preaching. uh at a wonderful uh, tent revival on Tuesday evening at Bo and Mary Allen's house. And I was telling people, and a lot of them were believers who were there, I said, I'm not trying to take you away from your church, but if you can be here, if you're not attending anywhere. One lady said, my church meets at 8.30, I'll be there at 11. So uh, be in prayer, invite people. Invite people that need to hear how great um, God is. It's going to be a wonderful time, but prayer is critical. Prayer is critical for God to work, and so be in prayer uh, for that. We're looking today at John chapter 11, beginning in verse 17. You know, our Sunday school this uh, morning had to do with fear and, and rational fears and irrational fears, but I was thinking this past week of two of the most terrifying experiences in my life. Both of them happened When I was a youth, uh, the first was my senior year in high school and uh, I was hanging with friends and at that time we would cruise around Buckingham on Friday night looking for something to do and my good friend Mark Drinkard had what turned out to be an awful idea. He said, I think it was around the fall of the year, maybe near Halloween, he said, let's go to the flood house. Well, the flood house was located on Highway 24. It had been abandoned and condemned for a number of years, uh, but teenage legend said the place was haunted, and so we were deciding, okay, we're going to go see this place. A bunch of teenagers getting together, acting crazy. We know what happened. Uh, We arrived at the flood house, and we got on the porch and the first person opened the door, and then we just heard a thud like that. And I mean, we lit out like we were shot from a cannon. I've never been back, but I do have a theory. What happened was when that door was open, the building was so dilapidated, I believe that one of the walls just fell in and caved in the house. And by the grace of God, we foolish kids weren't in the middle uh, of that room. The second time, i was terrified was shortly before halloween if you knew my dad my dad was the greatest practical joker i ever met in my life in fact uh, if he didn't joke with you he probably didn't didn't know you very well and so he teased us as kids all of the time so it was about a week before halloween and He began to tell us a story about the Babcock House, some tragedy that happened years before. Not the Babcock House where you sit and eat, but a relative of it. It actually was across from where I live. So again, it's not the dining place. There was another one. And um, it was right across the street. And he worked us all up, and he came to me a couple of days before Halloween. He said, Rick, if you... Well, just go over and set foot on that porch. I'll call you a man. And so you know what? Halloween day came. I was worked up like I don't know what. And I got the gumption like a child going to a dentist. I said, i just got to get it over that night. I ran up. I touched the porch just barely and lit back to the house. Not knowing my dad was hiding in the bushes at our house when I came back. Now my stomach was in knots all day, so you can imagine what happened from that point. I won't say. <laughs> but it was totally embarrassing. But you know, as I think about those events, it reminds me of an account in the Old Testament. My my favorite Old Testament character was Elisha, not Elijah with a J, but Elisha with the sh and elisha was a real man of god he prayed for a double portion of the spirit that elijah possessed god did many great works through elisha but there was something that happened after elisha died that most certainly would have frightened me and you read about it in second kings chapter 13 and verse 21 and historically it says once as the israelites were burying a man Suddenly, they saw a Moabite raiding party, so they threw the man into Elisha's tomb hurriedly to get away from the raiders. But when the body touched Elisha's bones, the man revived up and stood up. I thought, man, what would I have done if that had happened? I'd have been scared to death. But then I thought I'd love to have seen the look on the faces of those people as they threw that body in to see him. Rise up today. We're looking at the fifth of Jesus' I am sayings I am the resurrection and the life. There's to be no fear in that. When our lives are in the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ, we know that He indeed is the resurrection and the life. Look at with me at John 11, verse 17. Through twenty-seven, When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, less than two miles away. Many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them about their brother. As soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Yet even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Your brother will rise again, Jesus told her. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God who comes into the world. Let's pray. Father, we know that the Lord Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life. Lord, we believe these words even as Martha believed in you. Father, we know physically that unless you come back first for us, that, Lord, we will each one die. But, Lord, we know that the reality is that if we trust Jesus Christ, we'll never die will live forever. We thank you for that. Father, there may be some here today who have never trusted Jesus Christ. They may have questions, Lord. Uh, the, these words may seem even to be confusing, but I pray that you would bring clarity to them and for your glory, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the setting for this statement uh, is different from what we've looked at the last three weeks. We know uh, from the chapter earlier that uh, this uh, miracle that Jesus was going to perform that followed uh, this I am statement of Jesus was uh, after really uh, the period of Hanukkah. And so, or Hanukkah, you might call it, but it was in the winter of the year, this feast of dedication. Jesus hears of his good friend Lazarus having become ill, and then he hears of his death, but he was not alarmed. Isn't it good to know that Jesus is not alarmed? We look at everything that's happening around us, and nothing takes him by surprise. He's never in a rush. He's always on time. Well, John eleven seventeen says that upon hearing after the four days, Jesus finally arrived, at the home of Lazarus. Lazarus, again, had been dead for four days. Jewish thought, interestingly, was this. The Jews believed that um, for three days uh, after one's death, the spirit of an individual. I'm not saying this is uh, true. I'm saying this is what Jewish thought was. They thought that the spirit of the individual hovered around that person. So really, by the fourth day, they thought it's really beyond hope. There, there's no hope now. This person will not come back. But with Jesus, there is hope. So here in John chapter 11, a few verses after the verses that we just read, we see that Jesus raised Lazarus just as that man who touched Elisha's bones was raised in the Old Testament. And everyone here in John 11 hears about it. And so when Jesus, after this time, went about publicly preaching, he had, at least in some of these times, Lazarus was with him. And John 12 tells us that people were coming not just to see Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. But before all of this, Jesus was in dialogue in a conversation with Lazarus' sister. At the point of this conversation, these words we just read, Lazarus was still in the tomb, still bound. He would not be for long. He would be released. He would be unbound. But at this moment, Jesus shares one of the two I am statements, two of the seven, in which Jesus says, I am something, And then he carries out a sign that proves it. The other is in John chapter 8, we've already studied, where he says, I am the light of the world. And then after that, in John chapter 9, he gives sight or he gives light to someone who is blind. Here he says, I am the resurrection and the life. And then he brings to life Lazarus, who was dead. But not only do we see those two share something in common, But as we move to this fifth and we go to the sixth and the seventh I am sayings, these last three I am sayings all have a common theme, and it's this. Jesus is the life giver. Here he says, I am the resurrection and the life. In John 14, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the what? The life. And then in John chapter 15, he says, I am the vine, and and he expresses that the vine does what? It gives life to the branches. I pray today that you've come to know the one who gives life. That's who we're looking at today, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to look really at two points today as we consider this saying from Jesus. And the first is this, why is it even necessary that Jesus be resurrected from the dead? Why is it even necessary? Why is it relevant for you and me that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? Now listen very clearly. This question takes us all the way back to the book of Genesis, to the beginning of mankind. God created Adam. It was not good that Adam be alone, and so he created from Adam Eve. And he placed them, the Scripture says, in the literal garden, the Garden of Eden. Now this garden was beautiful, Far more beautiful than anything we could imagine. The last t- couple of days I've traveled west of here and have been in the car and I've observed the beauty of this time of year. Isn't it amazing? I mean, just the, the spectacular nature of this time of year. But that pales in comparison to the Garden of Eden. But not only was the Garden of Eden beautiful, it was full of life and it was fruitful, fruitfulness Representing what? Life. If something bears fruit, it has life. The scripture tells us that a river from Eden came forth and branched into four rivers that fed the known world. simply put, the Garden of Eden represented life. And at the center, the very center of the Garden of Eden was the tree of life. So for Adam and Eve, all was good. Everything was life. Everything was fruitful. But there was another tree in the garden, and it's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This was, simply put, God's tree. God decided what was going to happen with that tree. And so he said to Adam, he said, Of every other tree in the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. And God said to him, For in the day you eat of it you will die. Now, you probably know the story. If not, you know human nature, probably what was going to happen. What was forbidden was what was desired. And so Adam and Eve ate from the tree. And that was a problem, and it was a problem. Listen closely. Not just for Adam and Eve. It was a problem for you and me because it opened up a Pandora's box called sin. Sin entered humankind, and, and the Bible has a tight string between sin and death. Where there's sin, there's death. And so not only did sin enter the world, but death entered the world. And there are really two ways that man died that day. Mankind did die physically, physical death. Physical death entered the world at that point, as I shared earlier. Unless the Lord Jesus Christ comes back, every one of us has an appointment with death. You know, I, my favorite season of the year is Christmas. I love Christmas. I, I get pumped up every time we get ready for the Christmas musical, the drama that's coming up. Uh, I love this season. And uh, Karen and I, when the kids were young, we used to cut live Christmas trees. Now we have artificial trees speaking about my dad i can remember one year he and i cut one in evergreen we drove down 460 a transfer truck blew by us we didn't have it tied down we had to go cut another one tore that cedar to pieces but i like the smell of a tree but a week after christmas we take that tree from the house from the water source and we would drag it out back and by the spring of the year You know where I'm going with this. It was brown. It began to fall apart. It was lifeless. You could see it. But the truth of the matter was this. It was dead even when it was sitting in our house. Even when it was beautiful. Even when it was setting out a beautiful odor. Even when it... uh, was well ornamented and looked alive, it was dead. Why is that? Because it had been cut from its source. And it began the process of death. Now, there's a lot of things. You know, I can put a lot of makeup on. I can put a lot of liniment on. But it's not going to defy the aging. And you could decorate that tree, whatever. But when it was cut loose, it was dead. There are people walking around today with the appearance of life but they're dying, and many dying without the one who is the true life, Jesus Christ. They're walking, they're talking, they're grieving, um, but in their sin, they're severed from God, the one who gives life. I wonder today, does that describe you? The good news is this, Jesus is the resurrection and the life, but I want you to see, secondly, not only did they die physically, they died spiritually, The Bible says of all creation, mankind is unique. I love our Sunday night study and how Francis Schaeffer emphasizes the value of mankind to God because God created man in his own image. Man is a spirit being created for fellowship with God. Sin entered the human race. The devil came in with the temptation and sought to divide man and woman from the fellowship that he and she had with God. And as a result of that, there was spiritual death. Do you realize the Bible speaks in the book of Revelation twice about a second death? A second death is an eternal separation from God. We're all going to physically die and unless the Lord comes back, but you don't have to spiritually die. You don't have to be separated from God eternally. Romans 5 helps us to understand man's problem. In fact, it speaks of the two men, Adam, and then God's man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. Adam was given a command, and he sinned by transgressing or going against that command. And as a result of that, uh, Romans 5 tells us sin and death entered the world. And between the time, Paul says in Romans 5, when Adam lived on this earth and when Moses, who brought the earth, or who brought the law, lived on this earth, he said sin still existed even when there wasn't a command. And not only sin, death existed. In fact, in Romans 5, 14, even in the time between Adam, who was given the direct command of God, and Moses, who was given the law of God, in that time in between, the Scripture says death reigned. Adam opened up a Pandora's box. So as every person is a sinner by nature and by choice, the person that meets us in in the grocery store or who cuts our hair or who services our vehicle, that person, like you and I, is a sinner. Paul says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Why is it necessary that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, this is why it's necessary. We're caught in a devastating predicament of our own making, our own sin, and the resulting death. And Jesus is the answer. And that leads to our second point this morning. Jesus is the sole answer to sin and the sole restorer of life. Here, shortly after Jesus Uh, was speaking these words with Martha we see uh, that he raises Lazarus from the dead it was an amazing miracle but it was not a resurrection it was a resuscitation now granted I'm not talking about like CPR one minute after somebody breathes granted it was four days but it was a resuscitation You, you you say well what do you mean pastor resuscitation during as opposed to resurrection. When someone is resurrected, they're raised to die no more. Lazarus was resuscitated, and were he living today, we could expect him maybe to be in this service, but I don't expect him because he's not alive on the earth. He was raised only to die again. He was resuscitated, not resurrected. So as great a miracle as this was, Jesus is speaking to Martha of a greater miracle, and that is the resurrection of life, never to die again. Jesus says in verse 23, your brother will rise again. I love Martha's faith. Sometimes... We look at Martha and, you know, she was the one that was so busy and should have been worshiping the Lord. She was the one that that seemed to be impulsive where Mary, her sister, always seemed to be introspective and reflective and spiritual. But we see here Martha's godly belief. She says in verse 24, I know that my brother will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I'm the resurrection and the life, the one who believes in me. Even if he dies, he will live. Do you get that? Even if he dies, he will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Listen, as the resurrection and the life, Jesus came to gain triumph over sin and over death. But he came so that his triumph might be your triumph. Romans 5 tells us that sin and death came through Adam, but that same chapter, Romans 5, tells us that grace and justification and life, I emphasize life, came through Jesus. He's the resurrection and the life. So many people misunderstood Jesus' Messiahship. They undershot. They shot him short. Uh, Jesus, in fact, in some regions among the Jews, had to tell people to refrain from telling what he did because there were so many misconceptions about Jesus, who he was, and why he came. You see, a lot of people thought that Jesus was coming to bring temporary relief. Oh, if you'll help us militarily, if you'll be a military messiah, oh, if you'll be... Our political answer, if you'll be our king that will lead us to be independent from the Roman Empire, but they were undershooting. He came for something greater to overcome sin and death. Romans chapter 5, I want to read verses 16 through around verse 19. And we're, we're near the close here, but I pray if you've not trusted Christ that you would today. In, in Romans chapter 5 and verse 16, it says the gift is not like the one man's sin, that is Adam's sin, because from one sin came the judgment resulting in condemnation. But from many trespasses came the gift resulting in justification. In other words, what he's saying there, Adam messed it up in the beginning and it opened up a problem leading to condemnation. But notice the greater one, the Lord Jesus Christ, after all of that, he came and took care of all of it. Since verse 17, by the one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. How much more? Will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Verse 18, so then as through one trespass there's condemnation for everyone, so also through one righteous act, that is Jesus' death, there's justification leading what? To life for everyone. I wonder today, have you come to know one who is life. As we close this morning, there are really a couple of questions I think we need to ask and have answered uh, as we look at Jesus being the resurrection and the life. And the first question is this, can a person gain eternal life by being good, by keeping the law? In other words, Pastor, I want to go to heaven. Can I be good enough to get to heaven and the answer is no the bible says that the laws or the commands that we would desire to obey from god they're good in fact paul says in romans chapter 7 that the law is spiritual the problem is not the law the problem is we're unspiritual And so he adds that no man is made right with God by the law, by keeping the law, by, we might say, being good. It's emphasized in Galatians 3.11 and Romans 3.20 that we cannot make our way into life, we who are dead in our sins, by what we do. In fact, he says, if there had been a law given which could give life, truly righteousness should have been by the law, but it's not so. The law is not the resurrection and the life. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. What you don't need to do is pull yourself up by your straps and say, I'm going to be a better person because I guarantee you, you're going to fail. What you need to do is say, God, I can't be a better person. God, I'm a sinner in need of your grace. Jesus, come into my life. Jesus, you're the life. Infuse your life into me. And that leads to the second question how can i access that life that jesus gives very simply jesus says by believing in him and by living in him he who lives and believes in me will never die will never see spiritual death may expire my my dad's body expired but he didn't expire and he's awaiting uh, when the Lord comes, he'll be clothed with his eternal dwelling. But in his spirit, he is alive with the Lord, as is those who have trusted in Christ. Jesus is a resurrection and a life. He has provided everything you need to live forever. You must believe in him. Imagine for a moment you would approach a uh, grocery store this afternoon get to the checkout line, you reach in, you pull out your debit card, and you start to hand it to the clerk, and she says, no, 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 no. Somebody came in an hour ago and said, for the next two hours, I'm covering everybody's grocery bill. First, you'd probably pass out, but the second thing, when you came to your senses, what would you do with that card? You'd put it back in your pocket. You don't need it. You don't need double payment. Why would you? It would be foolish to say, let me pay what's already been paid for. Jesus Christ paid everything for you to be saved, and he rose again. And you know what he's calling you to do? Believe in him and live that way. Live like you believe. Francis Schaefer in our Sunday night study, He gives a poignant picture of what it means to receive Jesus' victory over sin and death by faith. We looked at it last week. He said, faith is raising empty hands to accept the gift. Would you do that today? Say, God, I bring nothing but my life. Faith is not the basis of your victory. It's the access, the grace of God through Christ Affected at Calvary and in his resurrection, that's the basis of your salvation again. I close with this thought. Um, again, uh, the Sunday night study with Francis Schaefer. he shared something we looked at a couple of weeks ago that I really pondered a lot. He said if he had one hour on a train with someone he would never see again, he said he would spend 45 to 50 minutes talking about the negative of that individual rather than the positive. In other words, he says, what I would desire to do is to show this person the dilemma that he or she is in. Because he said, they're not going to look for an answer if they don't realize there's a problem. There's a problem that you and I have, and it's sin. And the problem is, as I said earlier, death is tied with a tight string To to sin, not just physical death, but spiritual death, we need to be convinced that our sin needs to be paid for. And there's only one who paid for it, and that's Jesus Christ. I wonder today would you come to him with empty hands and say, Lord Jesus, I've been trying to run my own life, I've been trying to live my own life, I'm living for myself. I'm living in my own strength, but Lord, I want to come to you and see you do in and through me uh, the resurrection and the life what only you can do. Why do you continue to strive against his spirit? Why not let go for the Lord today? If you're a believer in the Lord, are you sharing the message of the gospel? Let me encourage you next week. We've got a big event Saturday night, great outreach event. Invite someone. It's unchurched. Say, I want you to come with me. Be my guest. Bring a lawn chair out. We'll we'll fellowship. And some people, they may not come in this setting. They would come over there. The Christmas program, great opportunity to invite people who have not heard the gospel. It will be presented. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Let's pray. Father. You are the answer to man's greatest predicament, which means you are the greatest answer to our individual predicament. Father, we're like the publican in that account of the Pharisee and the publican. Lord, we just stand before you and beat our chest and say, have mercy on us, God, a sinner. Lord, you don't ask us to bring righteous acts. You ask us to bring our life to you so that you might give your life through us. Father, if there be anyone here today who has not trusted you, I pray your spirit will continue to strive until that individual says, yes, Lord, yes, I believe in you. I trust in you. Father, for some of us here today, you've been placing people in our hearts. They need to come out next Saturday. People that we need to invite on November 7th as this testimony of this family will be shared. Father, the Christmas program. Lord, may our hearts yearn for our friends who don't know you. May this church be a light in the community pointing people to the resurrection and the life of Jesus Christ. Father, we love you and lift this prayer in his holy name. Amen. If you've never trusted Christ, won't you reach up to